Rude Awakenings, Chapter 4 Read by Achan Shutito and Nick Scott Achan and Nick have set off before dawn from Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha. This marks the start of their walking pilgrimage around the Buddhist holy places of northern India and Nepal. A new map is attached to this chapter, covering the next part of the journey. It can be opened when using Podbean, Apple or Google Podcasts but may not be available on some other apps. Chapter 4 The Observer Achan Suchito In the months before we left Britain, people asked us to keep a diary and to take a camera, to bring the impressions back home. Neither of us were keen. Nick didn't want to be looking at everything in photographic terms, and I didn't want to spend hours each day writing things down. Why not let it go and go without a trace? Personal history is a dead weight. But as the months went by, and so many people became part of the pilgrimage, the perspectives broadened. A fellow bhikkhu sent a small, lightweight arms bowl from Thailand. Another gave me a homemade lantern that squashed down to a disc, but popped up to contain a candle when needed. There was the water filter. A director of the Cambodia Trust loaned me a pocket-sized wooden Buddha image. It was 200 years old and came from Laos. Part of his aspiration to help Cambodia then came along with me. Sick bhikkhus, who couldn't walk far themselves, came along to the holy places, one via a set of mala beads that he had made from boxwood, and another in the pouch he had made to fit on my waistband. Another bhikkhu applied himself to fixing new rubber to the worn soles of my sandals. It went on. I wanted to bring them something back. So when one of the nuns gave me a diary that she had made and wrapped in ochre silk, I couldn't refuse to use it. And Nick relented. If you keep a diary, I'll take the photos. He carried out the undertaking with enthusiasm. It was a tiny camera that fitted into one hand so he could take photographs in an unobtrusive way and was getting some delightful shots of village life. Nepali children carrying bundles of wood twice their size, oxen munching at fodder, people threshing grain. Later, I wrote in the diary, Nove 12, leaving Lumbini, walk north and east, crescent moon, quite cold. People lying asleep on tables in shop and tea stall. Dogs howl and in call as dawn approached. Hot by nine o'clock. Snow-capped mountains, distant on left. Bairawa by ten, post office. Cross-border after midday, very hot, resting grove by road. Evening market, inquire after route at Militia HQ, khaki uniforms, friendly, not much English, new road not on map, goes to Tutibari, due east. Nick sees map on wall, they give it to him. After we leave, officer runs after us with my sitting cloth, walk on in darkness. Sleep in Mango Road, off the road. 
Starlings burst out of the trees, chattering when I lit candle. Cold night, damp dawn. Observation was easy up to a point. However, it left the feeling that I wasn't doing enough. Nick was always doing things. He was the organiser, poring over maps several times a day and extracting every scrap of information from them about the nature of the land, the possibility of finding armed ways along old drainage channels, muttering into his beard, and then breaking into cryptic ejaculations of discovery. His shop for candles and torch batteries while I sat by the road, maybe softly intoning a mantra, adjusting the straps of my sandals and putting plasters on the blisters. Having money, he could give it away. I just sat or stood around. I could use some time to learn Hindi from the little grammar and dictionary I brought along, but Nick being the one who dealt with a lot of things, he often took the lead in conversations anyway, brushing aside my slow and painstaking Hindi sentences with a couple of Hindi words, rigorous gestures and simple English thrown in. Amazingly enough, the mixture worked. My side of the action seemed a bit feeble. So there I was, trying to be a great pilgrim. For me, that means at least trying to acknowledge and undo blind compulsions. Frequently, I'd prime the effort with a period of quiet, devotional chanting as I walked, or use the mala beads and recollect inwardly the presence and the teaching of all the Buddhas. That end of the world, wherein one is not born, does not grow old or die, is impossible to be known, seen or reached by travelling. But, friend, I do not declare that one can make an end of suffering without reaching the end of the world. Friend, I do proclaim that in this very fathom-length body, with its perceptions and consciousness, is the world, the world's arising, the world's ceasing, and the path leading to the world's cessation. One's inner world can change if it is observed impartially, and in training the mind this clear observing entails careful preparatory activities, determinations, intentions, a setting up and a tuning of attention from the moment of waking. In my case, a few minutes would be needed after waking, cocooned in the bivy bag, to get the mind to remember which direction in the darkness the torch was, and generally off to the left of where my head lay. Get the torch first, then sit up, wrapped in the dew-dripping bag, light a candle, make some arrangement with my robes to stay warm. Breathe deeply. Take a few swallows of water. The stars were out, and at a distance a lump that moved and grunted occasionally signified that my fellow pilgrim was also going through his early morning rituals. We generally got moving soon after waking to work the stiffness and cold out of our bodies. Just after dawn, we'd stop by the side of the road and set our Buddha images on top of my arms bowl, light incense, bow to that shrine, and chant recollections on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, aspirations for the welfare of all beings, reflections of gratitude and caring for all those who had helped or hindered us. This will be followed by half an hour or so of silent meditation. 
But the preliminaries over, the day would begin, generally with a man on a bicycle stopping to question us or a bullock cart squeaking by. Subsequent days presented the same scenario. Trudging along the roads of India, you quickly get a feeling for the perspective of the renunciant traditions. The world is endless. It is a wearisome procession of illusory events that are repeated until one sees through them. Through non-involvement in this web of sangsara, the heart is liberated from this mundane plane of sorrow and attains the sublime, nirvana. The landscape supported that mood. The flat Ganges plain, paddy field after paddy field, is almost hypnotic in its monotony. After a few days, the mountains to the left faded away, and with no boundaries to move against, we could almost have been walking on the spot. Everyone was dressed the same. Men in white dhotis with long shirts or jackets, women in plain saris. The men rode the same kind of black bike, which travels at the same dreamlike speed and jangles the same bell. The women are walking a flowing walk, a huge pitcher of water or a vast bundle of rice straw balanced on the head. Trucks clatter by, blasting their horns, and almost all the trucks are the same model, coloured red and travelling at 30 miles per hour. Villages put on the same scenario of tea stores, tiny kiosks with the vendor squatting over his cigarettes, betel nut and pan leaf concoctions, sweets and oddments. People are squatting, knees against their chests, talking, mending things, weaving baskets, fixing shoes or threshing grain. The expressions are generally impassive, the tempo slow. Buffaloes plod along forever, as dull as the mind in the afternoon heat. Flowing into consciousness were not only the banshee howl of trucks and the shriller jangle of bicycle bells, but also the rhythmic stabs that denoted blisters, dull ringing in the head, memories and moods whispering of tea. I tried to concentrate to find some degree of contemplative balance, but the real art was to let go, to drop all the forms, and the mind's spaciousness as well, in order to attend to the world. Its unpredictable turns regularly threw me into a mood, but that was what I was here to learn about. So, when we interacted with people, which would be pretty continuously between eight in the morning and five in the evening, I would try to turn my responses around. A lot of contact was the repeated questions. Gahajarahe, where are you going? Where are you coming from? What is your name? The questions are not real questions. They were excited verbal reactions, using the only English phrases that men, it was always men or boys, knew, just to make some contact. A cluster of children would break into, What is name? 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 I smiled, tried to show interest, or at least look benign. A lot of times when one answered questions, it was apparent that their level of English did not extend to understanding answers. Then there were also the invitations to stop at my house. A kind gesture, I thought. We should respond courteously, pausing to explain that we were pilgrims, disciples of the Lord Buddha, 
and we're wishing to get to Kushinagai in a few days. Entering into these dialogues was pointless in one sense, yet it was a religious activity to treat each person as unique. A couple of times I managed to get in a few remarks to catch the attention, ask a few polite questions in return, and feel things calm and open delightfully. But then there were Nick's reactions to these encounters, brusque or cutting remarks that sealed off the interaction before I could respond or overrode what I was saying. The situation then transformed into them and us, with us getting up and leaving, more on the run than on pilgrimage. But Nick and I were together, so I had to learn to work with him and with what being with him brought up, rather than come on self-righteously. When you're hot and dusty and it's the 20th person of the day asking the same pointless question and the trucks are streaming by blasting their horns, it's not easy to treat each human as someone who matters. And Nick was a doer. Apart from the map reading and shopping, he loved to be helpful. The pad of self-inflating foam that was supposed to be a soft centimetre between me and the planet at night regularly deflated to leave me dumped on a rock. I accepted it with gloomy resignation, but Nick was going to fix it. Into the drainage ditch he went to ascertain the location of the leak and circle the spot with indelible marker. The next town had a bicycle repair shop, and he spent half an hour or so explaining, pointing out and getting a patch stuck on. It didn't work. The next day he would try again another drainage ditch, stopping in another town, but there was always another hole or the patch came off. And on and on, this is Sangsara. Nick Scott For the first few days, we were walking across a land that must have been forest until recently. The road was very new and it crossed the rolling and slightly higher ground in a straight line. There were fewer villages, bigger fields and square remnants of woodland. It was all typical of the Terai that runs along the base of the Himalayan foothills. Here the silt deposited by the rivers exiting the mountains is banked up and the water table can be much further down. On this higher ground the soils are poorer and they suffer from drought for much of the year. That's why until this century, and the introduction of mechanical pumps, there were still great tracts of forest lapping the base of the Himalayas. They would have been dominated by the sow tree, big straight trees with few longer branches that make good timber and were once the most common species in northern India. The Terai sow forests have mostly gone from India now, and they are going from Nepal. Lumbini would have been in such a forest, both at the time of the Buddha and when it was rediscovered last century. That forest has since gone, cleared first by logging, which in Nepal's case was usually illegal with the logs going into India, and then cultivated by people migrating north from India. After that we entered lower country, turning south to follow a river where people would have lived for much longer. This area had once been swamp, also common at the base of Himalayas, and the reason for the Terai's old reputation for malaria. People here were growing sugar cane, which needs the water, 
and we passed between high walls of leafy green stems. There were also areas of open water, dotted with lily pads and filled with water birds. Grebes, moorhens, coots and waterhens, all darting out of sight into emergent vegetation. And occasionally there was the flash of bronze wings as jacanas took flight. That night a mongoose bolted past us, a black shadow in the gloom as we stumbled about in the half-light looking for somewhere to sleep. Although they're a problem for the villagers, taking poultry if they can, they're tolerated for all the snakes, rats, mice and scorpions they also eat. We, like the mongoose, rested up in bolt holes near to human habitation. There was no other choice. This land was so crowded with people and they were so interested in us that we had to wait till nearly dark to find somewhere to stop. Nowhere was far from people and even if a small plantation looked remote, once we settled down, we'd hear the sounds of habitation nearby. At least by night everyone would be inside and we would be left in peace. Having found somewhere, we would unroll our sleeping things, set up our small shrine for the evening puja, and then sit on into the evening in meditation, invariably with me succumbing first to the call of my sleeping bag. The only night I can recall being conscious after Ajahn Suchito had lain down was the first night I had dysentery. I spent much of that night stumbling off into the bushes and returning to my bed only to have to do it again half an hour later. It was during our daily alms rounds that we got to see inside the villages. Indian village life is lived mostly outdoors and we would pass by and through it all. One day we passed an old lady with crinkled leathery features puffing at a hooker in the shade of one of the huts and then rounding a corner found ourselves walking towards a beautiful young woman combing out her freshly washed long black hair shining in the sun. Everywhere people were working with the rice. It was mostly in by now and much of it had been built into storage huts made of rice still on the stem and built up in a circle heads to the centre to the height of the real huts and then capped with the roofer's sloping straw. They were also threshing it, usually by beating sheaves onto tables, or if a village was beside the road, lying it out on the tarmac for the traffic to drive over. The threshed grains then had to be winnowed. I took one photo of an old man using a hand-turned fan to create enough draught to separate the chaff from grains thrown in front of it by a boy. Achan Suchito. On the second day out from Lumbini, while walking through a village, we passed the small shrine, and people came out to talk to me, inviting us to visit it. It was a humble, square, brick and plaster structure about the size of a small garden shed, with an overhanging roof and a covered walkway all around it. Each face of the central block had an open entrance, through which one person at a time could make offerings. I knelt at the shrine and bowed. It was a shrine to Hanuman, the monkey god and loyal helper of Lord Ram in his epic battle against the demons. Hanuman 
is that in us which selflessly and tirelessly serves goodness without asking for renown, a worthy and easy God to pay respect to, with none of the disturbing ambiguities of the loftier divines, rather like Nick's good side. I knelt before the shrine for a few minutes, turning things over, with a handful of people standing back in a suitably hushed manner. A sadhu gave me a faint greeting. He was talking to an elderly woman who seemed to be asking for some personal advice. Her face was streaked with tears. Then he moved off, leaving me to interact with a dozen or so people who had gathered. No, we have not eaten today, I said in my faltering Hindi. We can eat anything, but we cannot eat afternoon. It is forbidden. Religious duty. I could only deal with about 20% of the remarks that came back. But they eventually offered cooked rice and dal, and then sat in a semicircle about a metre away, watching and softly passing comments among themselves on various things that they had observed about us. After the meal, I did some chanting as a blessing. This produced a ripple of excitement. The tearful old lady bowed and touched my feet. She seemed so sad that I sprinkled some water over her head and chanted a few auspicious verses. The ripple turned into a wave. A young man came forward wanting a blessing and offered a twenty-rupee bill. I explained that money was forbidden to bhikkhus. Checked, visibly frustrated and a little abashed at having his offering refused, he tried to give the money again. The tension was resolved by a nearby tea stall. Give tea! That is good, I suggested. He returned with glasses of hot tea and some sweets. Things seemed to be flowing along very well. But we had to get to Tuti Bari by the evening. Never knows why. Later, I wrote in the diary. Tuti Bari, one horse town. Trucks cross over to Nepal. Tea, candlelight. Town has blackout. Walked on. Slept in grove near some houses. Mongoose. Dogs barking. Nick Scott. It was about the third day that it began to dawn on me just how difficult this pilgrimage was going to be. The first few days after Lumbini had been hard, but I was carried through them by the wave of initial enthusiasm. Even getting up at 3.30, a compromise on Ajahn Suchito's initial proposal of 3 o'clock, to leave at 4 on the first day, and an awful trudge through the heat just before noon, with the border town shimmering, like some mirage ahead, never getting any nearer. But then the hard pace we were trying to set, combined with the heat, the amount of people, the dysentery, and the endless flat roads began to get to me. This wasn't my idea of walking. Walking was striding out over the hills in a cool breeze, with beautiful views, well away from people, and surrounded by wildlife. Walking was pleasant. Instead, we were now passing through a landscape of endless flat fields 
all much the same. Constantly pestered by people so that it was unpleasant to linger, there was hardly any wildlife, and we were walking in the heat. I've never been much good in heat. I have the kind of big and bulky body that is good in the mountains or on polar expeditions. But even in Kew Gardens Palm House, I have to sit down after ten minutes. In India, I enjoyed walking for the first hour in the cool of the early morning. Once the sun was up, the heat was bearable till eight. Then it started getting really unpleasant and I'd begin to wilt. What made it worse was that Ajahn Suchito was so much better at it than me. He was not affected by the heat. He was much more patient with all the inane questions and he could walk so fast on those flat roads. The strange walk he has, feet slightly turned out like some kind of duck, seemed to be an adaption for walking fast on the flat. I remember particularly walking beside the railway. I noticed on our map a small branch line following the road and thought it might be better away from the vehicles and all the people. However, there were also fewer trees, and so the pools of shade that I'd crossed back and forth to walk under on the road had gone. The single railway line ran ahead through a landscape washed out by the brightness of the light, and as the heat increased, I would begin to drop further and further behind, with my mind starting to whinge like some eight-year-old. In mid-afternoon it would eventually get so bad that pissed off and way behind Ajahn Suchito, I'd come to a halt under a tree and just collapse. I was seething so much, I wasn't up to asking if we could stop. And anyway, Ajahn Suchito would usually be out of sight. Eventually I'd calm down and trudge on to find him waiting patiently for me. It was during this period that I decided not to shave my head. I'd enough to deal with just trying to do the pilgrimage. Somewhere along this stretch dawned the realisation of our difference in expectations. We were exchanging experiences of past walks. He told me about the walk from Devon to Chithurst and which he'd done his back in by carrying all his belongings in two of the shoulder bags monks use in Thailand instead of a backpack, and how the two of them had shared a tent so small that they had to sit up all night when it rained. He did that walk in a pair of rubber Wellington boots, without socks, and from which the heels fell off en route. Then there was the walk on which he'd worn a pair of boots two sizes too small and had feet so badly blistered that the other monks had to ask him to stop because they couldn't stand it. Jesus, I thought, no wonder he's not finding this one hard. Walking beside the railway line, the one thing which would always wake me out of my reverie were the steam trains. I remember particularly the first one, just after we joined the line, it came snorting round the bend, and I had Ajahn Suchito stand near the line to take a photo, with it bearing down on him, smoke and steam pouring out, and with the passengers hanging out of the windows, grinning and waving. Ajahn Suchito was so close that he was showered in cinders as the engine passed. The trains would come past every two hours in alternating directions, first one coming down the single line, then one going up. The last time I was in India, steam trains were still pulling some of the main line services, the Bombay Mail the Hadrapur Express. 
Now those trains have been replaced by the big oily diesel engines. But India was reluctant to see them go entirely, as they use Indian-produced coal instead of imported oil. So on the thousands of branch lines all over India, they were still thundering along, belching out smoke, which is even more spectacular and polluting because the coal is brown lignite, full of sulphur and tar. As we walked by the railway line, we'd pass its various features, still as they were left by the British. Unlike on the roads, milestones instead of kilometre posts lined the tracks. Level crossings were each manned by an Indian, living in an adjacent railway hut. Old-fashioned signals had big wooden hands and worn steel cables leading to the signal box, and stations were stone with wooden and slate canopies like the abandoned stations on British branch lines. There were water towers for the steam trains and small collections of government houses for the railway workers. The reason India had kept all this running, while we've closed most of our branch lines, was apparent on each train and waiting at each station. The enormous number of people too poor to afford a car. We reached the station for Siswal Bazaar in the early evening of the third day. This was the first place since Nepal we'd been able to stop that had shops, and I went into town leaving Azun Suchito on the platform. It was getting dark and all the street stores lining the road from the station were lit with kerosene lamps. They were selling different food snacks, and I had to make my way through the enticing smells of frying pancakes, toasting peanuts, and the stall selling eggs that could be fried or boiled to order. Snack bars such as these appear in the little towns only in the evenings. Seeing them while not eating afternoon was really difficult. While my body tried to walk resolutely past, my mind stopped to linger at each one. The town was not far off and was a lovely old place of meandering narrow lanes lined with small shops. Each consisted of one open-fronted room, raised two feet above the dirty street, with the owner sitting or squatting in it, usually with other family members. Most would be the size of a typical sitting room, and each was full of a great assortment of things. Big bars of rust soap, large open tea chests full of grains, rice or raw sugar, rope, plastic shoes, cheaply made notebooks, and lots of other items that poor country people might want. Some of the shops specialise in something, often brightly coloured cloth stored in bolts stacked to the ceiling, but many appeared to have much the same general wares. There was obviously subtle differences though, because I was passed from shop to shop, each owner taking me to the next, before I found batteries of the right size for Ajahn Suchito's torch. From the railway line we went down to a village on arms round and ended up sitting beside a small Hindu shrine. Arjun Suchita sat beside these, or under a Bodhi tree, as they were religious places. An appropriate place, he felt, for us to be. They were also public places where anyone could approach us. This time, however, it turned out to be a private shrine, so I was sitting there thinking we'd never be offered food in such an out-of-the-way place. The day before we'd only got jaggery because we'd stood at the wrong place, by the road talking to some youths. But then the man whose land it was came and invited us to his house. 
He was an older Brahmin of about 60 with grown-up children and he spoke English well. We sat on his veranda and as we waited he told us about his family history. It was a story tinged with sadness. Their family had held the post of local agent under the British Raj. This combined being the local magistrate with the collecting of taxes from the surrounding area. And as it was such a position of influence, their family had prospered. With independence, agents like his father were not looked on kindly by the new rulers. His father's position was lost and most of his lands were taken away. Our host had lost his inheritance. All he got when his father died was two acres and the buildings that now surrounded us. Barns, a big house, offices where his father had presided and the temple. It was now a sleepy backwater, the buildings gently falling apart and with two small fields sandwiched between them. He explained that he couldn't afford to maintain the buildings having spent all the money he inherited on his children's education. His great sadness was that his eldest son was now at home with him again. The son had failed to find a job and now his son's wife had left him to return to her own family. What was he to do? How could his son find a job? And without one, how could he ever get another wife with just the income from the little land they had? His son was brought out to meet us as if we could do something, but all we could do was empathise. We spent a couple of hours there talking to the two of them and our visit did seem to alleviate the air of despondency. We talked about our journey, things began to feel better and they brought us some food. Probably remembering how British visitors were treated when he was young, the father offered us tea in proper English teacups, along with a plate of biscuits. When these quickly disappeared, he sent his son for some toasted bread rolls. The effort was well-intentioned, but provided inadequate sustenance for walkers. But it felt inevitable that we were not going to get enough. It was in keeping with the mood of the place. That was the second day we'd had too little to eat. It was well past noon by the time we left and too late to do anything about it. At least we left with heartfelt thanks from both the father and son for our visit. We returned to the railway and walked on. Looking back now, I can see it wasn't surprising I found it all so difficult, with the dysentery, the lack of food and the heat. At the time, though, I was blaming it on my surroundings, on my companion, and most of all, the people we met as we walked along. I was short-tempered, and it felt like they were all deliberately making things difficult for me. It was only a few miles from there to Captain Gange, where our branch line met another, and where we would have to leave it. The railway line, which had until then been running due south, began to turn, and as we came round the bend we could see Captain Gange station with a steam train pulling out on the other line. From here we had to head west and south to reach Kushinigar the next day. We left the railway line before the station and cut across some fields looking for a small river I'd spotted on the map. This led slightly more directly to where we wanted to go than did the main road, and I thought it would make some pleasant walking. We reached the road first, and as we walked along it, looking for the river, we stopped an educated-looking man. 
I guessed he might have some English and would be able to direct us. Asking directions in India is not as straightforward as at home. Here it was more like an elaborate game of chess. Mine was the usual simple western opening gambit. Excuse me, can you direct us to the river? I am asking you first why it is you are wanting the river. With this move my opponent had opened up the board and given himself several possible lines of attack. Still keeping to my simple gambit, I replied, We want to walk beside the river to Kushinigar. Then you must go by bus. This was a well-used Indian ploy that I was familiar with, and I had my reply ready. We are on a walking pilgrimage and cannot take the bus. Then you must go by road. This road is going to Kushinigar. But we want to walk by the river. It will be quieter there, fewer people, none of these noisy lorries. My slight tone of desperation gave away the fact that I was beginning to lose the encounter, but I hadn't realised it yet. His reply was masterful. There are crocodiles in the river. You cannot go this way. It is dangerous. You will surely be eaten. It was Czech and although I still thought I might be able to get out of it, my king was more vulnerable than I'd anticipated. Ajahn Suchito asked if there were also crocodiles in the Great Gandak, which we planned to cross and walk beside later. Certainly, and also decoits. It is most dangerous to walk in India. You are much better taking this trunk route. With that, it was checkmate. I could see there was no way I was going to get my king out of that. Although I long ago learned to take all such warnings for what they really were, clever ploys to frustrate me, Arjun Suchita was more concerned by the news. As if the crocodiles were likely to eat us. We weren't going to walk in the water. In fact, the idea of seeing some crocodiles appealed to me. I could see, though, that Arjun Suchito thought otherwise. I am afraid I am not gallant in defeat. I did not shake hands with my opponent. My abrupt thanks and goodbye gave away my true feelings. As we walked off, I had one last go at it. But Ajahn Suchito was for taking the trunk road, lorries belching fumes, loads of people and all. He pointed out that I was still feeling the effects of the dysentery and wandering beside a crocodile-infested river was not a good thing to do when ill. My king had fallen over by itself and now lay on its side in defeat. I walked on depressed. Not only were we going to have to walk the last leg on the trunk road, but it seemed my plans to try and cross the Great Gandak by a small passenger ferry shown only on my 1940s maps and then to follow the river south to the next holy site were also thwarted. The trunk road went there too. Achen Suchito. Siswar Bazaar, railway line, sleeping Muslim cemetery, 15th, Captain Gange, Nick Ilon Road, to Rumkula. 
Nick's difficulties increased by the day. Whenever I paused and looked around, he would be way behind, struggling ant-like across the broad palm of the earth. When he eventually lumbered up, head down and dazed, he would sit silently in a ditch and drink water, leaning on our bags. On the road, after a few minutes, a group of people would gather. By the railway, there were fewer people, but no shade. No rest in Sangsara. On one occasion, after a rest of about fifteen minutes in a grove in the heat of the day, a few boys found me lying down and brought their fathers and mothers and relatives. I looked up to find about thirty people squatting round me. The men were a little gruff. The women, quiet but obviously concerned, I could make out, Where is your house? as one of the phrases they were repeating. I realised that to them my actions were abnormal and hence disturbing. Houses and villages were where people were supposed to be. Everybody belongs to some place. Strangers, especially white strangers, should be somebody's guest. They must belong to somewhere in the human system, at least not here in the dirt under the trees. Too many perceptions didn't match up in their minds. White, but robed and shaven-headed. In an unimportant grove in a nowhere region with hardly any possessions. It was too much to explain. We moved on. But through all of it we gradually sank into the earth. The earth that swallowed excrement and suffered the plough, the mother that produced rice and sugar cane and teamed with humans. The bare earth gave us a few minutes fleeting rest from the pain of blisters and the ache in the back. The dry earth caked our feet and grimed our bodies with dust. Its cold hardness woke us up before each dawn. We were becoming part of that unquestioning mud initiated into the soil. On the last day before we came to Kushinagar, we left the metalled road and walked along a path to a village for arms. A dark-skinned farmer invited us into his mud and rice-stalk hut. We sat on the earth floor while he said a few words to his wife who was grinding flour back in the gloom. She turned wordlessly to slapping some dough into a flat bread. Chapati, we say. The Indians normally refer to them as roti. He poured water over our hands, then served rice, roti and dal onto giant leaves. We ate with our hands and washed again before giving the blessing after the meal. He followed us outside, and as we left, looked up and extended his outstretched arms to the sky. To me it was the same opening gesture to the sky, the fertile lord of sun and moon and rain, that the wide earth of these plains makes. That evening we would arrive where the Buddha lay on his right side between two sal trees and calmly passed away. After innumerable births and eighty years in this life, he had completed his wanderings. As for us, we had passed from the Buddha's birthplace to the site of his last breath in five days, but there seemed to be plenty of mileage left in Sangsara, within and all round. It was impossible to pin it down as either right or wrong, pleasant or unpleasant, hostile, indifferent or benevolent. But whatever it was, 
it went on as far as I could see, and in it there was nothing you could hold to, nowhere to rest, except in watching.